So um, we've got a long passage here. I, uh, Ashley asked Kathleen and I if, if we would read today, but then we accepted, and then Kathleen realized she's in the nursery. So you're going to have to listen to me read this whole passage. It's long. So uh, bear with me and just listen up. We're reading from um, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 40. Okay? Here we go. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, he, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do so as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under necessity, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet my judgment, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. The Word of the Lord. Stop waiting for life to begin. You need to stop waiting for life to begin. You see, there are too many people that are waiting. They're waiting. Life will really begin when I'm married. It'll really begin when I have a family. It'll really begin when I get that job. It'll really begin when I achieve that goal. It'll begin when the kids move out of the house. Life will really begin when I retire. But friends, we can't wait for life to begin. We need to bloom where and when we are planted. This is the overall message of this passage, although in reading through it, it's a long passage and you hear a lot of moving parts. The overall thrust of the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is bloom where you are planted. And if you want to follow along with me this morning and you want to use the Pew Bibles, that's page 1135, starting on page 1135 in the Pew Bible, or you can look in your own Bible. But we're going to go through this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to see that the thrust of the message is bloom where you're planted. Now, last week, we heard Paul celebrate the joys of married sex. Now, I'm not going to take a poll and see how many people went home and applied this sermon last week, So, although I hope you did. But last week, we talked about the joys of married sex. We found Paul talking about this in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 7. But then he moves on, having celebrated and promoted marriage, to talk about other issues, and specifically singleness. Now, the church celebrates and promotes marriage because it's God's good gift to us. It's God's good gift. It's given to us for the good of individuals. It's given to us for the good of families. And ultimately, marriage is given to us for the good of society. Marriage allows us to fulfill the creation mandate given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says that God created man, male and female, and then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So marriage enables the fruitfulness, the multiplication of marriage. Marriage is good. It's God's good gift to us. But sometimes, 
Sometimes as a church, our emphasis on the goodness of marriage can leave singles feeling a little bit like second-class citizens. Uh, You know, our church programs and schedules are so often structured and organized with the married or, or families with kids in mind that the unintentional message to singles can sometimes be, hey, listen, we're really waiting with you to get to the, get with the program, you know, and get married, because then life really begins and you can really find a place here. Well, singles, the good news is this week is for you. Because Paul makes clear in this chapter that the most important thing for any of us, friends, is not marriage, nor singleness. The most important thing for us is to bloom where we are planted, whether married or single. Now, Paul, having just celebrated, as we saw last week, the first five verses, this celebration of of sexuality within the covenant of marriage, he then makes a a sharp turn, it seems, in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. I mean, Paul's just been talking about the goodness of marriage, and then he writes, now listen, hey guys, I'm not commanding anything, but I wish that all were like I am, single. Now, Paul recognizes that marriage is a good gift of God. However, here he says that singleness is also a good gift from God, and each person has their own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And church, this would have been especially important for the early church to hear. Because when we read through the Old Testament, when we read through the Hebrew Scriptures, we repeatedly find the idea that marriage and children are a blessing and that singleness and barrenness were a curse. So what we discover here is that now that Christ has come, friends, there's a new kind of fruitfulness for the Lord's people. Under Christ, while marriage and procreation are still a means of multiplying God's people, however, now being fruitful and multiplying happens more essentially through evangelization and discipleship. So the single person can participate in this kind of fruitfulness just as much as the married. And in fact, the single person might be especially situated to be fruitful in ways that a married person could not be. See, marriage is no longer a prerequisite for fruitfulness. But in the gospel, there are other ways that we might be fruitful. You know, Jesus referred to this himself in his own teaching in Matthew chapter 19. He he was teaching on the lifelong permanence of marriage and the restrictions on the no-fault divorce of his day. And having taught on that, his disciples kind of balked. And they objected, and this is what happened. Matthew 19, starting in verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. So Jesus says, not everyone can receive the saying, it's better not to marry. Not everyone can do that, only those to whom it's been given. To to some have been given the gift of not marrying, the gift of singleness. And Jesus speaks of those who, who are unable to have sexual relations, both because of birth defects or castration, but 
he spends some time talking about eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those who have willingly chosen a life of celibacy for the sake of focused dedication to the kingdom of heaven. And Paul is talking about this as well. In 1 Corinthians 7, as Brian read for us, verses 32 through 35, Paul talks about the advantages of the single life in serving the Lord. Again, starting in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, Paul says, when you're married, when you're married, well, a man is rightly focused on pleasing his wife, and the wife is rightly focused on pleasing her husband. But the single person is in a unique position. They have the ability to undividedly and unreservedly focus on pleasing the Lord. Now, does that mean that married people can't please God? Well, no, that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's simply making clear the realities of married life. Your responsibilities, your time, your money, your attention is necessarily divided. And Paul's not saying that's bad. He's not saying that's inappropriate. He's saying this is simply the way it is. Paul's point in saying that he wishes all were as he is, it's a recognition that the single person has a greater amount of attention, time, and money to devote specifically to the work of the Lord and the promotion of the gospel. Uh, More time and attention to devote to multiplying and bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. So friends, being single... I mean, you have fields and opportunities available to you that a married man or a married woman does not have. I mean, if you're called to travel from village to village on a motorcycle, bringing the gospel to a hostile Muslim area in the Middle East, it's probably better not to drag your family along with you. Or if you're going to live in poverty and squalor to serve the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India, you don't want to have to worry about earning enough money to feed your wife, and children. Paul's not saying that singleness is preferable, and he's not saying that marriage is bad. Paul's point is simply that both marriage and singleness have advantages and disadvantages, and both are gifts from God, so bloom where you're planted. Now, church, Paul's message is that singleness is not a curse from God from which you must escape. Singles hear that. Singleness isn't a curse from God from which you must escape. Singleness is God's current gift to you. Maybe it's a lifelong gift, and maybe it's just a temporary gift. But your singleness is the current field in which God has placed you for His work. And that field gives you unique opportunities to serve Him and to serve His gospel. I heard a quote from a woman, 64 years old, who was single her whole life, and she wrote, My word to other singles is this. Don't live like you're waiting. Live the most fulfilled, joyful life that you can now. Friends, none of us should wait or waste our lives pining away for something else. We need to, wherever we are, married or single, bloom where we're planted. 
And for those of us who are married, we might think, well, this, this doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm kind of tuned in out here. This is the singles week. I got, I got to listen last week. But friends, this does apply to us. And Paul makes a point here in these next verses that we need to hear. Verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Just notice who Paul addressed at the beginning. To the unmarried and the widows. Friends, even those of us who are married right now will one day likely be single again. Single by death or by divorce. Divorce is the reality that many have and will contend with, which leaves you single. But the one that we don't like to think about and we don't like to talk about is death. Very few married couples die at the exact same time. Which means that statistically, there is a chance that you're going to end up single again later in your life. A widow or a widower. In fact, I was reading a reflection by a man who was celebrating with his father his father's 100th birthday. And as he stood there celebrating with his 100-year-old father, his memory went back. It went back to his, his father's and his mother's 50th wedding anniversary. And it was shortly after that 50th wedding anniversary that his mother died. And as he stood there with his father at 100 years old, he said, My father was single just as long as he was married. He was married for 50 years and for 50 years lived as a married man. And he was single for 50 years. It was a split up, but he was single for just as long as he was married. Friends, the point is too often when we think about singleness, we only think about young people. But singleness covers many ages and many demographics from young to old. And here Paul mentions both the unmarried and the widows or widowers, young singles and older singles, never married and once before married. And Paul says, wherever you are, if you find yourself single and you discover you have the gift for remaining single, then embrace that. However, if that's not your gift and you find yourself a, in a, yourself a burning desire to be married, then embrace that. Either way, you're not sinning. In either condition, married or unmarried, bloom where you're planted. Serve the Lord in your marriage. Serve the Lord in your singleness. In other words, marriage is not more spiritual and singleness is not more spiritual. Pursue either according to your giftedness and according to the wisdom that the Lord gives you facing the situation you're facing. And to that end, Paul makes this same point later on in the chapter. He talks in verses 25 through 28, and then 36 through 38 about the betrothed, and asking whether they should get married or remain unmarried. Now, betrothal in that day was like our engagement, only it was more binding. And in that time, betrothal and marriage were often more um, arrangements of convenience than they were necessarily loved. So when you read that passage about the betrothed and should we get married, should we not get married, these aren't Romeo and Juliet. These aren't two star-crossed lovers necessarily who are pining away, burning to be with one another. They're two persons going, so should I take the normal, socially expected, already planned next step and get married? 
And as we've already heard from Paul, marriage is not preferable to singleness, nor singleness to marriage. So according to your gifting from the Lord and the wisdom of your situation, Paul says, make a decision. Verse 26, Paul talks about this present crisis and says, in light of this present crisis, maybe you shouldn't get married. Now, we're not exactly sure what crisis Paul's referring to, but there is indication that Corinth, along with that area, had been affected by a serious famine at the time that Paul was writing. So Paul's message might be, you know, this might not be the best time to get married and start a family in the middle of a famine. Maybe in light of this present crisis, it might be easier to get by as a couple of single people than as a married couple trying to start a family. And they says, however, if you do decide to get married, you haven't sinned either. So whether you marry or whether you remain unmarried, there's no more spiritual way, he says. Just bloom where you're planted. Serve the Lord in your marriage. Serve the Lord in your singleness. Now, the, the one caveat that Paul does give about marriage and remarriage is in verse 39. In verse 39, Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So friends, if you do marry, whether as a young single who's never been married or remarrying as an older single, you must marry in the Lord. In Paul's next letter to the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now friends, on this ground right here, I have refused to officiate some weddings before. Because I will officiate a wedding between a non-Christian who's marrying another non-Christian. I will officiate a ceremony for a follower of Christ who's marrying another follower of Christ. However, I will not officiate the wedding of a Jesus follower who desires to marry someone who does not love Jesus. Because the assumption of these two passages from First and Second Corinthians is if you do marry, you should not purposefully walk into it being unequally yoked, married to someone who does not love Jesus as you do. If you marry, you must marry in the Lord. Because friends, if Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, if He's your goal, if He's your passion, how can you willingly and knowingly bind yourself to someone who doesn't share that passion? So if you marry, He says, you must marry in the Lord. But this creates a problem. And creates a problem in Corinth that He had to address. So what if, when I was a non-Christian, I married another non-Christian then I became a Christian. Since, since my spouse is not in Christ, and since I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked, since I've now come to Christ, should I leave my unbelieving partner? And so we hear Paul actually address that question in verses 10 through 16, if you want to look there, starting in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, first, we should probably note the unique language Paul uses here. Do you notice he says, to the married, I give this charge? Well, not I, but the Lord. And then we're going to hear in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. 
and I mean, what's, what's Paul doing here? You know, Paul's not saying, well, in the first part, I'm inspired by the Lord, and then the rest of this, I'm not inspired by him. When in verse 10, Paul says, you know, the Lord says this, he's saying, hey, listen, I'm quoting Jesus' words here. In the Gospels, Jesus is recorded multiple times teaching about marriage and divorce. And so what Paul is saying here is he goes, we have a word directly from Jesus on this, and this is Jesus' word. I'm quoting that. This is nothing new. This is what Jesus said about marriage. But in verse 12, Paul comes to a question about which Jesus never spoke because Jesus didn't have to address this. So there are no words directly from Jesus, but Paul says as a Jesus-called Spirit-inspired apostle, in verse 12 he says, Jesus never spoke directly about this issue. However, this is how I understand Jesus' teaching applies to this situation. Paul's not denying inspiration or downplaying anything that he says. Paul's simply differentiating between the direct words of Jesus and his own spirit-inspired wisdom on this current situation. Now, it seems that some in Corinth were becoming Christians, and they're saying, well, now that my status in Christ has changed, and now that I'm a Christian, so should I divorce my unbelieving spouse so that I can more faithfully follow Jesus? I mean, if I'm going to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, shouldn't I leave behind my unbelieving husband or wife in order to do that? Isn't singleness in this case preferable? And Paul's counsel in verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, is that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And says the same to wives. Just because your status in Christ has changed, it doesn't change your status as a married person. Oh, the only thing that changes is how you're now going to honor Jesus within that marriage. How you're going to gloom where you're planted. So if, if the unbelieving partner is willing to continue living with you, don't separate from them. Friends, Paul's advice is instead of separation from them, let your presence be sanctification for them. Instead of separation from them, let your presence be sanctification for them. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, when Paul talks about making them holy, he's not saying that we can save another person or make them sinless. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. Only Christ has that power. But he is talking about the sanctifying influence of a believing partner on his or her spouse and on his or her children. You can have an influence on your partner and an influence on your children. You can bloom where you're planted and be that influence. The Apostle Peter writes about this in his first letter in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Friends, you can't save anyone, but your life, your conduct, your behavior, your words might be a sanctifying influence upon your spouse and upon your children. In you and through you, they might see the light of Jesus Christ. 
Christ. So bloom where you're planted. Now that doesn't mean they're going to be saved. That doesn't mean they're going to be saved. Paul makes that clear in verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? You don't know. But stay there. Bloom where you're planted. Be a sanctifying influence upon your unbelieving spouse and your unbelieving children. And Paul builds on this idea in verse 17. He says, Only let each person lead the life the Lord's assigned to him and to which God's called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then he goes on in the next few verses, in 18 through 23, applying the principle. He talks about circumcision or uncircumcision, the marks of the Jew or the Gentile. He says, neither is of ultimate importance. Wherever you are, bloom where you're planted and serve the Lord. Then Paul talks about being a slave or free. He says, neither is of ultimate importance. I mean, if you can purchase your freedom, go ahead and do that. But ultimately, that's not what's important. Bloom where you're planted, slave or free, and serve the Lord. And he concludes in verse 24, Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. In other words, don't be so worried about your circumstance. Be worried about serving in your circumstance. The important thing is to bloom where you're planted. Friends, Christ came not to change, to change, He did come to change your status before God, not as much to change your situation before man. What is important ultimately is not your marital status, not your ethnic status, not your social status. So whatever your marital status, ethnic status, or social strata, remain with God, bloom where you're planted. And the reasoning behind all of these teachings about marriage, singleness, ethnicity, social status is found in the heart of this which is verses 29 through 31. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, husbands, when Paul says to married men, live as though you don't have wives, he's not giving you permission to neglect your wives. Nor should you deny your feelings, which is when he talks about mourning or rejoicing. Nor does he say neglect your house and your car and their maintenance when he talks about living as though you have no goods. Paul is saying, remember, this world and all of its forms, they're temporary. They're transient. They're passing away. So even as you live in this world, don't live for it. Even as you live in this world, don't live for this world. Marriage is good. But friends, even marriage itself, for all of its goodness, is temporary. Remember what we heard Paul say in verse 39. He said, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free. Marriage is good, but it's temporary as long as he lives. Marriage itself is passing away. Jesus taught in Matthew 22, verse 30. He said, For in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. 
So friends, marriage is important and it's good, but it's still temporary and it's currently passing away. Paul's message is that singleness and marriage, they're important now, but however you are, ultimately they're not of the most importance. The most importance is to bloom where you're planted. The most important is to keep your eyes fixed on Christ, whatever your situation is. Marriage, ethnic distinctions, social class distinctions, all the structures in which we live today, they play a part in our lives and our functioning, and they're important, but friends, none of them are ultimate. They're important, but none of them are ultimate. Only Christ is ultimate. So whatever status you find yourself in, whether single or married, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, all these things in the present form of this world, it's passing away. Thus, these are not the ultimate things. Christ is the ultimate thing. Christ is the most important king. Thing. Christ is mine forevermore. So church, in this life, whether single or married, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, bloom where you're planted. Serve Christ with all of your life, in all of your circumstances, through all of your circumstances. And whatever your circumstance or status, honor Him. Proclaim the Gospel. Be fruitful for His kingdom. Because that alone will last. And the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, the present form of this world is passing away. So live for the eternal. As we sang this morning, all I once held dear and built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own, marriage, status, position, possessions, all that I once thought was gain, I count it as loss, spent and worthless now compared to knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. So church, single or married, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, honor Christ. Honor Christ. And bloom where you're planted. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to bloom where we are planted. Help us to follow you whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Help us to trust you whatever situation we face. And help us to remember that this world and the things of this world are passing away. But you are eternal. And that our hope, our hope is that Christ is ours forevermore. May our eyes be on Him. May our work be for Him. May our trust be ever in Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.